it's truly an honor to be here. Uh, you know, people have asked me before, well, do you still get nervous as a preacher? And I said, yeah, like, you know, every time. And um, so I was listening to uh, this band called The War on Drugs on the way here, and they have a song called Under the Pressure. <laughs> the chorus is under the pressure, that's where we are. <laughs> you know, and I thought, yes, it is. Um I mainly live under the pressure because I have four children. They're, they rank from ages 16, 16, 14, 10, and one just turned five. And um, so I know. Thank you for that. And uh, <laughs> the other day I was at a local place with my youngest and um, a, a lovely um, grandmother was out there and she started talking to me about Richard, my youngest, and it was very clear after about two minutes that she thought he was my grandchild. <laughs> and I think the way that I reacted, she all of a sudden, I could see it happen, all of a sudden it dawned on her, oh, you know, and that was kind of the end of all that, you know, and um, so uh, I want to tell you one story, I, I think just because uh, I don't know, it'll allow you to get me know me a little better, but also I, I hope it'll frame this talk a little bit. Uh, right as I was backing out of my driveway, which is over in Brookwood Forest, um, I, I tried to kind of hang around as long as I could, and uh, my 14-year-old, Martha actually knocked on the, door, the window looking down at where the cars are and pointed, and I was looking, and August, my second child, the 14-year-old, came out, and he had just found out that second that he made the tennis team at Mountain Brook Junior High. And uh, now the reason I tell you that is that last year at this time, we had the exact same kind of scenario, except what he found out was that he did not make the tennis team. And there was gnashing of teeth and such. And, um, and, and it, I don't know, it made me, uh, we, we've kind of been in this mode all day, you know, where, uh, you know, well, what do we do if he doesn't make it? You know, and how are we going to handle that? And, and if he does make it, like, how do we handle that? And, um, and because of how last year went and all, you know, you have on your mind, well, what is fair? And what, uh, how should you respond uh, to situations like that? And it's fascinating that tonight, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, relief excitement for August, and the immediate next thing that came to my mind was the boys who didn't make it. And, uh, you know, I think in talking about a subject like the law, and in talking about a subject, uh, how shall we then live, sin, sanctification, the law, and the gospel, you know, it, it, a subject like that hits on every aspect of what I just mentioned, you know. What's our concept of what is right and wrong? What's our concept of what is fair? John Calvin actually said that, uh, in his opinion, uh, the one-word summary of what the law was all about was the word equity. You know, fairness, right? And so our understanding of the law, which actually is ref uh, really has everything to do with our understanding of the lawgiver, of who God is, right? Because what the law is is a reflection of his heart, of his character, of his mind, we might say. Um, but the law, you know, frames everything. It's, the Bible says it's written in our hearts, you know. It's one of the reasons that um, uh, 
you know, everyone who was trying out for the tennis team had some kind of concept of what's fair, of what's right and what's wrong, Christian or non-Christian, you know, because it is written on our hearts and it helps frame how we think. The other part of that, though, is that how the law, uh, or maybe I should say how we begin to deal with the law and our understanding of how the law actually points us to uh, the fulfillment of the law and the one who fulfilled the law, Jesus himself, the one who, who is the living embodiment, we might even say, of the law, has everything to do with the way that we uh, act and react in situations like your child not getting on the tennis team or your child getting on the tennis team. And one of the frustrating things I was thinking about tonight was, you know, I thought, why is it this way that I feel like I actually have a much better handle on this thing this year because August didn't get on it last year. And I started thinking, you know, if he had made it last year, I don't think I would care about those kids who didn't make it. You know, who knows? And, And why is it that, you know, suffering is the context of so much learning? And I think all of that is wrapped up in our understanding of how God has communicated with us in terms of who he is and and who we are and what we're made for, what is right, what is wrong, what does it look like to be conformed, to be made in the image of God, to be conformed to the image of God. And what does it look like to be people redeemed by the blood of a person, the God-man, a person who not only died but rose from the grave, granting us his spirit and thus uh, giving us new life defined as the ability to actually know God and walk in his ways, right? To seek after him, to have a heart uh, that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, you know, as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount. And all of those things to me are wrapped up in this uh, <laughs> this huge topic of uh, sin, sanctification, the law, and the gospel. So I want to attempt to do a couple of things this evening. Uh, first, I want to kind of do the technical thing that I think I'm being tasked with. The reason I'm here is I'm, I'm representing John Calvin tonight, actually. <clears throat> um, uh, no, Mark, when he, when he called, he said, you know, we're uh, doing this series. And um, I don't even think you said exactly who you were representing. But um, I heard your lecture, though, and at the beginning you said that you were not neutral. Yeah, thank you. This is what happens. You go from Presbyterian to Episcopalian, and not only that, they give you a fancy title, and the next thing you know, you think you're God, don't you? (laughs) So, um, man, fancy pants. Um, No, uh, I'll just say, I think I'm supposed to kind of represent, just as Peter Mowish uh, represented in, in a really erudite way, uh, the Lutheran, or you know, some of the Lutheran background in this, and uh, Lutherans know uh, the Lutheran tradition is very rich when it comes to this. Um, I'm supposed to represent more of what you might call the broader Reformational kind of aspect of this, the Presbyterian or English Reformation. Um, so, uh, but also uh, the kind of the Calvinistic view. So what I want to do is go ahead and and jump in with that, but then I want to transition a little bit out of kind of that proper, our understanding uh, or what other people even have understood about the relationship between the law and the gospel and how we should even look at the law as Christians, how we should receive it. Um, 
is it helpful to us? To what extent is it helpful to us? I want to then transition from that into, well, kind of like, well, okay, but so what? You know, how does that affect us on a daily basis when the tennis team is happening or not happening, you know? Or when the marriage is happening or not happening? Or when, you know, the stock market is happening or not happening? And so, let me begin, though, uh, with John Calvin. I call this the Reformation view of the law. Uh, excuse me, from, uh, not John Calvin, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I call it, uh, entitled this little section, The Reformation View of the Law from the British Isles. Because you can make a distinction between how those um, on, the con- on the British Isles viewed the law and how those on the continent of Europe viewed it. Sometimes people call that a continental view you know, versus kind of an English or even Scottish view. So the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, written um, 1643, group of men, they called divines, were appointed in order to actually give the official take that the church and government had um, on what the nature of true religion was to be. And it would literally be like, uh, you know, Barack Obama uh, calling a group of men together to go meet in Washington, D.C., paid for uh, by the government. And to take as much time as they needed, um, you know, as many years as they needed, in order to come up with an answer to that. And so, chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, and I just have before you paragraph 6 and 7, because I think they kind of will give you an idea of, of what um, the Reformed tradition from Great Britain believed about this, says this. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, and that's a real Presbyterian term right there, to be thereby justified. In other words, although Christians uh, don't look to the law in order to be declared righteous, right? Or condemned, for that matter, because we've been delivered from condemnation. Yet, is it of great use to them as well as to others? Meaning the law is helpful in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty it directs and binds them to walk accordingly discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature hearts and lives so as examining themselves thereby they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience of the law. So you start to get an idea here that from the Presbyterian, from the uh, British Reformational side, there's this tradition that's not just even reflected in Presbyterianism, it was reflected in um, Anglicanism as well, that uh, there's this idea that the law has a use, we might say, that historically is... Uh, come to be called the third use of the law. And that is that the law not only serves as a whip driving us to the cross, you know, showing us our inability, showing us the depth of our sin. It not only serves um, as a hedge or a fence, meaning that it's written on the hearts of man and, and the law written on the hearts of man is what makes life possible, right? Some kind of order, whether it's in India 
whether it's in Africa, whether it's in China or here. But the third use being that the law actually um, is helpful in terms of helping us figure out how to live daily life. And that is a view that is particularly associated with John Calvin and with Calvinism and with uh, the British Reformation, with Presbyterianism and things of that nature. And so that's, again, why I'm called to uh, speak on that this evening. So the law um, would basically say here that it's helpful. It helps us understand sin more deeply. It helps us understand the perfection of Jesus' obedience more deeply. You know, the more we come to understand what the law is, what it requires, and we realize, whoa. Uh, One way to put it is, uh, I like drawing. You know, when you first become a Christian, um, it's, it's funny. When you first become a Christian, you feel like your sin is about that big, and then maybe that the cross is about that big. I mean, it covers it. But what happens as we grow and mature, and one of the things that from the Westminster Confession's perspective, what it says, is that as we uh, come to understand the law, as we're confronted by the law, the Word of God in general, more deeply, you know, that, that sin gets a lot larger. But the cross starts to take on proportions that, frankly, we never dreamed of. You know? The cross starts to look more like something that can't even really fit on the board. You know? Because we realize that, um, you know, if you want to put it this way, if we used to think sin was weighty, And it felt so weighty as to crush us. We now realize, though, that compared to the blood of Christ, you know, the word, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. And it's onomatopoeia. It means weightiness, right? Sounds like a feather compared to the weight of the blood of Christ. Because sin is not a thing in and of itself. It's good that's twisted. And that's why it ultimately will be banished. But righteousness is a thing. Meaning righteousness exists because God is righteous, right? And so we begin to see, wow. What the law helps us to understand is the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And what I don't mean by that is that sin is a light thing. What I mean is, is that sin is a weighty thing, but the weight is entirely removed, and I mean entirely, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is because he really is the incarnate Son of God. And when the incarnate Son of God takes on the sins of the world, that's exactly what he does. The incarnate Son of God doesn't set out to fulfill the law and then almost do it. He sets out to fulfill the law by loving not just his neighbor, by loving his enemies. And he does it completely. I want to continue here for a moment. Uh, The law, they use the word it here, meaning the law, is likewise of use to the regenerate, which means what? Christians, right? Those who have new hearts. In order to do this, 
to restrain their corruptions, you know, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not supposed to commit adultery. Um, you know, maybe I'll not go see that movie. Um, and that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. In other words, one of the other things the law does is it reminds us that even as Christians, if the weight of the law has been removed for, for, from us, the law still reminds us that actions have consequences, right? We actually live in a real world, you know? It's bad for you to steal things, right? Why? Well, because people who steal things destroy relationships. Um, you know, live nervously. Uh, because they live nervously, they tend to be addicted to substances because they're trying to calm their hearts. And sometimes they end up in jail, right? And one bad thing, you know, the law is reminding us of all that, and that's a good thing. The promises of it, of the law, in like manner. You know, for example, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's valid, isn't it? That doesn't mean that, you know, if you honor your parents that, uh, you know, all will be you know, health and wealth. But it does mean that honoring your parents is actually good for you. <laughs> A group of people honoring them, their parents, that's good for society. You know? If you have a culture where honoring your parents is, you know, viewed as a good thing to do, at least within measure, you know, that's not a bad place to live necessarily. So the promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation um, of obedience. That means uh, the word approbation means uh, his uh, not just expectation, but his uh, appreciation. We might even say. Actually, when I looked up the word approbation, and it's, it, this is just funny to me. Um, sometimes when you look at words now, you know, the Internet is just amazing. Uh, so it not only had a definition and the Latin background, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Then there's a chart on the usage. This probably is not news to you, but the word approbation, the chart started in like the 16th century. And then over here is 2010 is where it stopped. And it went. And then actually at the very end there was a little rise and I thought, wow, somebody started using it again. But um, it's not me. Um, show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. I tell you what, let me just tell you this. Presbyterians make really good lawyers. Um, we, we can make really wondrous things wordy and boring sometimes. Um, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. I'm going to keep going. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages the one and deters the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. That last sentence is really funny to me because um, they're basically saying this. Look, all of that being said, a man's doing good, a man refraining from evil, because the law encourages doing good, because the law deters doing evil, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. You know, it's kind of like, now let us be clear again, the law does not lead to salvation, you know. Um, 
And it almost goes without saying, right? Um, one more little paragraph here. Neither are the, are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. Let me read that again. Neither are the forementioned, we might say, positive, helpful, appropriate uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel being that we are what we are, not because of what we've done, but because of what someone else has done. That person being Jesus himself. Our righteousness is his righteousness given to us. It's what theologians call an alien righteousness, right? It comes from somewhere else, not from us. But the writers of the confession are saying, look, that does not mean the law is unhelpful. Nor does it mean that if you continue to study the law, meditate on the law, appreciate the law, seek to walk in the ways of the law and of the Lord, that you are um, showing that you're no longer resting in Christ. He says this, these uses of the law, sweetly comply with the grace of the gospel. And this is what they mean then. They say, the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that, meaning to follow the law freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law actually requires to be done. In other words, there is a tradition out there that says But once we're saved, the Spirit of God that indwells Christians actually enables us to begin to, for the first time ever, actually appreciate the beauty of the law. And, of course, there's a lot of language like that in the Old Testament, right? It allows us to appreciate the sweetness of the law. And it's because we're not looking at the law any longer is something that hangs over our heads like the sword of Damocles. We're looking at the law now as something that reminds us of what it actually looks like to love our Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we actually want to know how to do that. Now, the law doesn't tell us everything about that. But it's also not unhelpful when we read it. And I love these words. You know, it allows us to freely, cheerfully um, begin at least to do what is required uh, of us in the law. You know, it was Jesus who told the Pharisees that not only did he not come to do away with the law, he came to uphold the law. And then he said this, and they were like, what are you talking about? He said, uh, he said, in fact... Uh, Excuse me, he was talking to the Pharisees, but then he told his disciples, he said, in fact, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness, you're not even going to be interested in my kingdom, much less be a part of it. Well, what Jesus was doing in saying something like that was he was in a shocking manner trying to get through to them, hey, the law is the law of love. The law is not a set of hoops to jump through randomly in order to get to some kind of prize on the other side. The law is something that is giving you some clues 
about the nature of reality. The law is telling you just a little bit about what it means to love your neighbor, you know. Um, it's a beginning. It's not an end. So that's part of kind of the understanding of the law from at least this one um, part of history. Now, let's keep moving. Uh, that's the Reformation view of the law from the British Isles. There's also a continental view of the law, we might say. And Philip Melanchthon and John Calvin apparently agreed on at least this. Um, if you go down to the third paragraph, the last paragraph on this page, this is fascinating. This is actually from uh, an article that Michael Horton wrote. Michael Horton teaches out at Westminster Seminary in California. And uh, I will say he's a Presbyterian who has strong Lutheran tendencies, <laughs> which may mean nothing to you, but um, doesn't mean a whole lot to me, actually. Um, but he says this, and I will say that Horton is a, a very good scholar. Um, he says, it was Melanchthon. So this is like one of your Lutheran heroes, right? You know, it's, it's like saying, I'm an old Miss guy. It's kind of like saying, you know, it was Eli Manning, you know. Um, it was Melanchthon who first formulated the, quote, third use of the law. That is, its didactic use in guiding believers in God's moral will. Hmm. Horton says, it was a Lutheran who actually came up with this idea that the law not only drives you to Christ, the law actually has a teaching function. And part of that teaching function is to help you understand what morality looks like, you know, what conformity ethically to the ways of God looks like. Um, he says, in fact, Article 6 of the Formula of Concord, this is a precious Lutheran document, explicitly affirms the third use of the law. If Calvin and his heirs more fully elaborated this use, it is just as true that they not only agreed with, but, but in fact appropriated the Lutheran formulation. In other words, they were leaning on the Lutheran formulation. Now go back up under the continental view. I'm going to read those two paragraphs now. Uh, Horton says this. He says, Calvin can speak of an absolute contrast of law and gospel in terms of the way in which we are justified, the way in which we're saved, right? In this respect, Calvin was simply a Lutheran, as were Reformed theologians generally until quite recently. Luther emphasized that the law commands and threatens punishment without mercy. The gospel gives and freely absolves sinners through faith alone. The law, whether adumbrated in the Old or New Testament, comes to kill the sinner, not to heal and reform. Legis semper accusat. The law always accuses, Luther insisted. Similarly, Calvin explains that when treating the matter of justification, that is of being declared righteous by the blood, by the work, uh, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul appropriately represents the righteousness of the law and the gospel as opposed to each other. But, Calvin quickly adds, the gospel has not succeeded the whole law in such a sense as to introduce a different method of salvation. It rather confirms the law and proves that everything which it promised is fulfilled. What was shadow, 
that is law, has been made substance, gospel. Now, uh, that's the end of the real technical stuff. Um, I just wanted Mark to know I could play like a theologian. He is a theologian. I could pretend to be a theologian. Um, so, I want to introduce you to a diagram. You may have seen it before, but I would not be surprised if you hadn't. It's tucked away in a book called Saved by Grace by a man named Anthony Hokema. And that word Hokema is a Dutch word. And there's a whole strand of Reformed theology that comes um, from the Dutch. And it's a particularly enjoyable strand, actually, because it's very earthy. And whereas the British and even to some extent the continental strand of Reformation theology is pretty legal in its orientation. I mean, Calvin was a trained lawyer. Um, and uh, my sister's in law school right now. We were talking today. I mean, scribes, you know, were lawyers. Um, pastors, to some extent, were lawyers. And, but, uh, and the Westminster Confession certainly was a legal document, uh, literally. But in, on the Dutch side, when they talk about theology, it's much more pastoral. It's much more kind of application-oriented from the outset. It's, it's, um, it's earthier, and I actually think it's more beautiful. And uh, I can tell you this much, it's a lot more comforting. You know, Very few people would read the Westminster Confession of Faith at the bedside of someone who's suffering, right? <laughs> Unless you just wanted to go ahead and push them like, oh, it's okay, Mama, you can go on and be with Jesus. You know, um, but... Uh, but <laughs> the um, when you start reading the Heidelberg Catechism, for example, it's just glorious. And Hukama is from that background, and I feel like whereas the um, the Reformation background that, to some extent, Calvin and very much so that the Westminster Confession of Faith represents, is pretty linear. It's kind of mathematical. Um, and there's a beauty to mathematics. Uh, a lot of beauty. But uh, the Dutch side is much, uh, it's rounder, you know. It, it uh, has more curves to it. Uh, and so, for example, one of the reasons that we're even talking about this is that as Christians, we're interested in this thing called salvation, right? And we're interested in what salvation is in terms of um, a declarative type thing. Uh, what does it mean for God to declare you to be his child, to declare you to be righteous in his sight based on the works of his son? We're also interested in it as a process that we are experiencing, or sometimes it feels like failing to experience, um, on a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment -moment basis. 
And Anthony Hokema, who was a godly, apparently, and wonderful man, he came up with this, and he said, um, there's a thing called the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation that lists out the events of salvation. Again, it's very linear. And Hokema said this, he said, he likes to view salvation more like um, looking at a diamond and the various facets of the diamond. And so one facet of it is top right there, regeneration, new life, new birth, right? Coming to faith, God changing the heart. It's a very unique thing. Only God can do that, right? And then another facet of it would be right under that, conversion. What is conversion? Well, conversion, um, some theologians have said it's the outward manifestation of an inward reality. The inward reality being regeneration, God changing the heart. Um, You know, even in the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel talks, you know, God says to Israel, I'm going to take out your hearts of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that you might keep my law, you know, that you might follow my ways. And that's the order of it. I'm going to do the heart transplant first, then... You'll begin to keep my law. Then you'll be interested in me. Then you'll begin to hunger and thirst after me. And so regeneration uh, is prior. At, at the same time, conversion, what it is, it's the response to that. It's the evidence of that. Uh, all conversion is, when, when, so technically, when someone says, well, I was converted, you know, in theological terms, you're like, well, you were regenerated by God. And then what that meant was you began to exercise faith and repentance, which are flip sides of the same coin. I like what he says. He says, regeneration is new life. Conversion is new direction. Regeneration, you're brought to life. Faith and repentance is the beginning of what will be your new lifestyle, right? Um, Justification on the bottom is a new status. We were condemned. Now, there's no condemnation. We could add right there, um, adoption. We were condemned, now we are children of God, sons and daughters of the King, right? And then there's sanctification, and that's what we're really talking about tonight. And, and what I love about Hukamah is he says, look, it's another facet of the diamond. Another thing that happens as we come to life and begin to follow Christ in faith and repentance is, is that we become newer and newer, we might say. The old gets left further behind. And there's a phrase called progressive sanctification, or he calls it progressive newness here. And there's a lot of... uh, That's one of those things that not everybody agrees on, you know. But I think one way to put it is this, is that as Christians, we're all aware that uh, there is such a thing as maturity, right? There's such a thing as immaturity, and there's such a thing as maturity. There's such a thing as less knowledge, and there's such a thing as more knowledge. There's such a thing as um, what you used to be, what you now are, what you will be. And I think from a personal point of view, kind of looking at the mirror, we're really, really often bad judges of that. Um, but I would say from an outward point of view, from the standpoint of other people, 
a lot of times it's pretty evident that um, someone used to be that, and you say, now they're different. You know? Again, I want to be careful. I don't want to put anybody on a chart, you know, especially me. Um, but this idea of progressive newness is, is closely tied to our understanding of the law and its role in our lives. Because what it's saying is, is that, yeah, when we come to new life, we start to want different things. We start to want to be like God. We start to want to please God. We start to want to actually help our neighbor. We start to want to, um, we actually become more interested in other people and less interested in ourselves. Another way to put it is this. Um, you know, as human beings, our tendency is, is the older we get, we stoop, right? And we curl in upon ourselves. And I don't know, there's something kind of theological about that, you know? And dust we are to dust we'll return, right? And thankfully, we'll have new bodies one day that won't do that. But as Christians, what happens is we go from people who were navel gazers to people who begin to look up. And I think what the gospel does when we're truly regenerate and and as we're beginning to really walk in the ways of God, as we're beginning to understand his law, I would say, is it's almost like not only is our head raised and we start to realize, whoa, there's a world out there that doesn't totally revolve around me. Shocking, you know? Um, A friend of mine used to be the head of the lower school at Macaulay, so the, the junior high there. And you know, his definition of a junior high student was that, you know, you are the epicenter of the universe. And, um, well, the truth is, you know, that's the definition of fallen man, right? And it really doesn't have a lot to do with your age. It has everything to do with our maturity as Christians. And so the more we walk along, the, the, the more we look out and the less we think about ourselves because we're so taken with this world that God has made and these people that God has made and the fact that God seems to be very active in it. We used to think he was not active in it. We used to be blind to what he's doing. But as we grow in grace, we start to kind of pick up on things and go, I think he's actually at work in that person. And you know, what really happens as we mature is um, it's not the people who kind of everyone expects him to be at work at where we see him. We actually begin to see him at work in the places that the world might say are least likely. Because we realize, no, 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 those are the places most likely. You know, um, The light shines in the darkness, right? So all that just so, and then finally, uh, one, another facet here I wanted to point out was perseverance. Because I think another part of, in talking about the law and talking about sanctification, all we're saying is, is that Christians are people who actually remain Christians. And if part of what it means to be a Christian is to love the word of the Lord, I frankly don't know how you can separate that from loving the law of the Lord. And part of what we're saying here this evening is that loving the law of the Lord not only has this salvific dimension of it driving us to Christ, you know, which it does over and over again, but it also has a really practical, lovely dimension. You know? um, I don't know how else to put it other than it really is helpful. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I hear the Ten Commandments read, you know, I think 
Yeah, it's good to be reminded of that. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's very good. Uh, I have to think for a moment here. I'm going to skip to the very last page because of time. I just want to say a few more things and then we can uh, do a little Q&A if you want to do that. Um, so I've talked a little bit about kind of a his, some of the historic understanding of, of the law, its relationship to the gospel. Um, we've talked about what salvation is and kind of the role of sanctification in that. Um, let me ask you this. How is it that we are sanctified? The word sanctification just means to be made holy. Justification means to be declared holy. Sanctification means the process of being made holy. Justification is an act. You know, the gavel, boom. Sanctification is a process. Right. Um, and the Bible uh, uses sanctification sometimes where it sounds like it's an act, actually. But it's this ongoing act, we might say, and this ongoing process. But how is it that we're sanctified? And, and the answer that theologians have given throughout history is this. We're sanctified by what's called the means of grace. And pretty much across all traditions, you could at least define the means of grace this way. Word and sacrament. Preaching and teaching. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We can at least pretty much agree on that you know, across the known world as Christians. Um, what happens in preaching? The word of God is expounded. You know. um, the word of God goes forth. The law goes forth. The gospel goes forth as the fulfillment of the law, right? The word of God preached really means Christ is lifted up. In the Old Testament, it's all pointing ahead to Jesus. You know, in the epistles, it, it, well, in the Gospels, um, you know, it, it's giving this vivid picture of what the Old Testament was pointing ahead to. And then the epistles, the epistles are answering the question, so what now? You know, all right, he rose from the grave. You know, he's crucified, he rose from the grave. What now? You know, and the answer that the epistles give is, well, we walk in the spirit. And a gross oversimplification is in the Old Testament, you have individuals doing kind of cool stuff from now on out, empowered by the Spirit. In the New Testament, it's the people of God in mass. Every tongue, tribe, nation. Try to stamp them out. They just grow all the more. It's because it's the Spirit of God at work. You can't hold it back. You know? You think the Pacific Ocean is hard to pull back? It's nothing compared to the Spirit of God. It's the ultimate tsunami, right? That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's what the book of Revelation is all about. The whole theme of Revelation is Christ is victor. You know? 
know, and he's poured out his spirit upon you, which means when Paul says, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He does not mean you can go out and win your tennis match. What he means is you can endure anything. Come hell or high water, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And so as that gospel is preached, and as, uh, as we are baptized into that gospel, which simply means this, um, we're initiated into, we're... we're um, Woven into, we might say, the community of God's people. And the assumption that hinges around baptism is a, a living group of people, you're, you know, the body of Christ you're baptized into. Right? Um, and so then there's the preaching of the word and then there's the Lord's Supper, right? Well, more and more I understand the Lord's Supper to be a really big part of sanctification and to be a really big part of our understanding of what it means to actually be those who go forth fulfilling the law of God. And here's what has made me think that. Um, again, this is the shortened version. We can talk more if you want to. Jesus in the Lord's Supper blessed what two things? Bread and wine. Well, that's a curious thing to bless. For one thing, you know, it's, it's not like waving something around and incantation. It's Jesus blessing bread and wine. Really, really basic stuff, right? I mean, think about it. Baptism involves water. That's pretty basic. Um, the word baptism means to bathe. Like, it's not a sexy term. It's not impressive or anything like that. It means to take a bath. To wash. So much so that, you know, when Jesus starts talking baptism, you know, some of the Jews are like, uh, Jewish people don't need a bath. But then Jesus comes and he blesses bread and wine and says, this is my body and this is my blood and you're to take it and eat it. And as you do so, you participate in my death, right? I think the word participation is a really important word there. Um, but why bread and why wine? Well, the reason, I think, is that in blessing bread and wine, Jesus is blessing products of human culture. And they're very profound products of human culture. In one sense, we would say that's really simple stuff. But in another sense, we would say, yeah, like, I don't know about you, but the older I get, I mean, good bread, it doesn't get any better than that. But you also realize to make good bread, you have to be what? They call it artisan bread for a reason. And good wine? Well, for one thing, you need to have a really good job if you're going to drink good wine, right? Because <laughs> they don't give it away. And one of the reasons is those aren't just kind of base level things, which they are. They're also pinnacles of culture. Jesus could have blessed grain. And he could have blessed grapes. 
but he didn't. And I think the reason is this. When Jesus brings us to his table, what he's saying is, in me, you're being reconstituted as human beings. Sin is dehumanizing. The process of sanctification is the process not only of becoming holy, it's the process of becoming human again. And what Jesus is saying is, just as the first Adam was told, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing. You know? Go forth, male and female, and take it all captive and, and develop it to my glory. Right At the Lord's table, it's the renewal of the cultural mandate. Jesus wants us to know that the work of man, because of the blood of Christ because of the resurrection of Christ because God took on flesh forever the work of mankind is holy once again in other words I don't think you can separate salvation from sanctification and the reason is is that Jesus didn't save us and then immediately pull us up into heaven Jesus saves us and says Heaven is being poured out upon you so that once again, you might go forth in literally everything you do and show forth my glory. You know, the word for the Lord's Supper that Anglicans use, I love, is what? That's right. Which means? It means Thanksgiving. You know what Thanksgiving is for the Christian? Everything. Jesus says, you're not just to take bread and wine. You're to take everything that touches you and say, thank you, Lord. I'm now going to seek to do good with this. Sometimes we think of sanctification as primarily this kind of like personal holiness plan. There's an aspect of that that's true, actually. You know, there really is. But that is such a shriveled view of sanctification if that's all we have. What sanctification is, is the process of being human again. It's the process of learning once again what it means to live and move and have our very being according to the Spirit of God, which is ours, according to the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Reformation tradition that believed that the law was helpful was the same tradition that also believed that um, you need help because God cares about the way you practice law. Not only that, the way you practice law is really important. It's holy. You're dealing with human beings and their relationships with one another. What could be holier than that? Those human beings are made in the image of God. When people go out and begin to build a road... That's a holy enterprise. There's an aesthetic dimension to it. Roads shouldn't be ugly. There's a safety dimension to it. If the road's not well built, at some point, someone's going to die. Teaching is holy. Parenting is holy. It's all, you know, playing tennis is holy. Amen. 
Um, it is because it involves the human body. It involves development of things. It, it involves just appreciation of air and of tension and of, you know, physicality, right? And my point is simply that I think, actually, the law of God speaks to all of that. The law of God is simply a reminder to us once we're Christians that, yes, it is a physical world we live in. And physical things and physical people are important. It's just the beginning. It's not the end. You know? The law says what not to do. The gospel says do. The law says, don't do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't to touch that. The gospel says, look, here are the things that you just need to worry about, and you, you don't ever have to worry about ODing on them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what the fulfillment of the law looks like. And you literally can never overdo any of those. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes people say, well, I was too patient. There's actually not, not such a thing as being too patient. <laughs> now, patience doesn't operate in a vacuum. But, you know, there's not such a thing as being too loving. There's not a, such a thing as too much self-control. That doesn't exist. Those are all aspects of what it means to be godly. That to say, I think that in Christ Jesus, we have the freedom to take God at his word and to, dare, dare I say, use his word, rely on it, take it in, let it help us, and let it point our, our gaze outward and go do the things he's called us to do in his world. You know? And to me, that's not just kind of the third use of the law. That's just um, a reminder that God has communicated to us so that we can learn to live. I think I'll stop there. Um, question? Please call me Bill. That's right. Hmm. I'll quote uh, Luther on this, roughly. Um, so, you know, yeah, regeneration speaks to the fact that we're dead in sins and transgressions, right? And um, what do dead people do? You know, nothing. So, um, if you're dead, in order to be raised, somebody has to do something. I mean, you know, it's the old life raft analogy. You can throw a life raft to a dead guy. It doesn't really help him, but... Um, what regeneration is, is God literally bringing us to life. So obviously that doesn't have anything to do with us. You, know? you wake up and go, what happened? And um, sanctification, though, on the other hand, is different, isn't it? We participate in sanctification. And Martin Luther said this, sanctification is 100% God. And it is also 100% man. In other words, it's God fully engaged with us. 
by grace, carrying us along, empowering us, pouring out his... I mean, what more can be said other than pouring out his spirit on us? You know, it's the spirit of life. I, I don't think you can add to that, really. But um, And yet, why does he pour out his spirit? So that as living beings, we actually might do, you know, and be, and live as we're... Um, be animated, you know, literally the word animated means to have life, you know. And so the spirit animates us, it enables us. So it, it's a both and. And uh, I think in the Protestant tradition, I can't, well, I actually graduated, I went to Catholic school one year. Um, but uh, in the Protestant tradition, sometimes things are so bound up in the legal aspect of san- salvation. And that's a true aspect of it. But um, they're so bound up in that that we, we forget the other aspects of it, you know, the moral aspect, the, um, the developmental aspect that I was just talking about, you know, the cultural aspect of it. And when you think of it in those terms, you think, well, certainly, yeah, I need, fully, I need God to be fully engaged, but God's calling me to be fully engaged, too. That's what sanctification is, you know. It's that process of living and learning. Um, let me put it one other way. This was an illustration I was going to use, and I didn't. Um, it's my new favorite illustration. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Hans Beyer, who teaches uh, New Testament at Covenant Seminary, Hans grew up in Germany, um, says this. You know what a, um, an engraving is, a, a, a print that's made via engraving? <laughs> what that is is you take a metal plate, and then they pour a thin... Um, you know, veneer of wax over the plate. And I studied this a little bit recently. It's actually just amazing. It's not simple at all. It's, I mean, there are people who all they do, like, is do the wax part because it's such an art. The wax is um, sometimes as little as one 250th of an inch thick. And then there are special tools that are used to etch an image in wax onto that piece of, you know, on top of that piece of metal. And what it does is it takes the wax away and exposes the metal just in those parts. And Heinz Beyer says this. He says, I think that is a good analogy of the preaching of the word. God's word, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word rightly preached, it begins to um, etch what is true of God and true of us on our hearts. You know, and the spirit does that work. He said, but this is what I think also, that that's just the beginning. He said, what the Spirit of God also does is then it leads us out into daily life. And daily life, for the most part, in one way or the other, equals suffering. Daily life requires endurance, right? sagacity, you know, wisdom at the very least. And he says what happens is as we go into these situations that demand wisdom, that are humbling, that are full of suffering, that are challenging, it's just like the second part of that engraving process. The second part is it gets doused in acid. And what that acid does is wherever it touches the metal that's exposed, it etches it. And it's after all that that then you have a plate that's ready to have ink applied and that can actually make an impression on something. 
And he says, this is what happens in the Christian life. The word of God goes forth and it's etched upon our hearts. But what really sears it and seals it and makes the impression on us is living in the real world. Is once again going out and seeking to fill the earth and subdue it. Because then we realize, oh, <laughs> you know, this is what Jesus meant. This is why Jesus didn't just, this is why God didn't just say a few words. This is why God's word became flesh. This stuff's real. And we need it to be really imprinted on our hearts and minds and souls. And that's exactly what God does. That's what sanctification is, I think. So it's a long answer to your question. Any other questions or comments? I've got a question. Uh, sure. The, uh, in the, on the first page, you quoted Luther. He says, the law always accuses. Hmm. And then the third paragraph says, but the, the formula of concord explicitly affirms the third use. So does the quote, the law always accuses, is that sort of pre-justification or... Or does the law still accuse in the life of a believer, but does it accuse for a, a beneficial purpose? It's a great question. Uh, did y'all hear the question? You know, the law always, you know, the law accuses. You know, that's it's Luther at his best. Um, and then at the same time, if we're talking about the law in a positive way, you know, the law is helpful. The law leads us like, all right, what do you mean? <coughs> Uh, one thing that comes to mind. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think? I'm being serious. Uh, I don't think the law is accuses. I mean, I, I, or, I mean, it's to the, if it does, it doesn't feel accusatory. I mean, I, I, in the life of a believer, I feel like it often feels um, good. Uh, so I, that's why I ask is accused. Meaning that a lot of times it's instructive to you? Correct. Yeah. What do y'all think? Do you experience that in your life? Luther also said sanctification was experiencing a constant renewal of justification. So that is the accusation of the law and then the, the grace. And you know, you're saying our sin gets bigger and bigger. That is the accusation of the law. So, but then the gospel through word, I don't know about sacrament, but through word, anyway, I'm not a big sacramental person, but through word. <laughs> so you think. Takes, um. away, takes away that, well, I like fear, but, um, and, uh, but, so, but the gospel takes away the accusation, and sin becomes like a feather. It's really weighty, and then it becomes like a feather, because we know he's removed it. And what you said about the feather, that was really good. Well, yeah, so another way to, I agree with you, you know, it, it, I think we all, if you're a Christian, you experience this. You know, you read the law, you read the word of the Lord sometimes. The word goes out and you go, e, out, mm, e, you know. I was already convicted of sin, now I'm really convicted of sin, you know. And, um, and that's good, it reminds us that, yeah, you know, Jesus didn't come for nothing, right? There was a reason he came, we're needy. Um, but at the same, very same time. We're also learning and we're being instructed. And when our consciences especially are you know, more at peace, like Jesus stilling the waters, we're really able to receive it and go, well, yeah, what is God teaching me? And see, it, 
you know, the Bible's not just, again, legal stuff. There's also this thing called wisdom, right? And the law is actually part of the wisdom of God. In other words, the law is multifaceted. Salvation's multifaceted. I said that. We had the illustration. The law is multifaceted. It's not a blunt tool. Actually, it's actually, I would argue, a finely tuned thing. And it, it, it has more than one um, use, you know, is what theologians throughout the ages have said um, and seems to be what people experience. So I don't actually think, uh, you know, what Calvin seems to say is, yeah, when, there's an aspect of things when we're talking about salvation that we realize um, from one angle, the law and the gospel are opposed to each other, right? But from another angle, from the angle of those who, for whom the curse is lifted, yeah, there's still some of that going on. There's still a lot of that going on. Um, but now also the law becomes our friend. It's like a flashlight, right? And now we can understand, you know, the word of the Lord. Wow, it becomes like honey, you know? Um, so, obviously not theologian, but well, you know, welcome to the club. I mean, so. it would seem that it's actually a very good thing that the law would be accusatory. Hmm. Um, I think that Luther said at some point um, that the law accuses and it can't accomplish what we want it to accomplish. Hmm. Therefore, to follow the law, we can't use it to, you know, give it the final. You know the glory that we want. We can't use it to, to bring us to God. Um, so in that sense, it's a beautiful and right thing that it is accusatory um, mm. because it drives us directly <coughs> to Christ, who can accomplish it or has accomplished it. That's a beautiful way to put it. Now it does its work, right? It's not meant to be everything. Um, you've obviously been doing more than playing tennis, by the way. Um, <laughs> Other thoughts, or you know, is it, uh, let me ask you this: Is this helpful? Why or how? I appreciate your take on the Eucharist and and your explanation of your thoughts on it. And I'm trying to recall exactly where I read it, but I, and I believe it was in the uh, a biography of Martin Luther. Uh, that when he was explaining the elements of the, of the Eucharist, the thing, one thing that, or among other things, that impressed him was that bread was not a single entity. Mm. It was a compilation of many, many thousands of grains mm. of, of wheat that were all melded together and made into a homogeneous mass, just like mm. a, a, a bottle of wine or a, a barrel of wine is many, many grapes that are mm. all mashed and molded together and it, and it produces a marvelous creature of bread and wine as we say in the Episcopal uh, there's a symbolism to that too that it's not a, a unit a grape or a grape mm. it is a mass brought together for, for God's people so it's this beautiful picture of the body you know here's what here's what sacraments are they're symbols that's what they are symbols are a big deal you and I are symbols right the word image so we're meant to symbolize the living God. So God believes in symbols. Another way to put it is, is that God's created a world where there are analogs. There are things that project meaning. There are um, 
you know, all knowledge happens via symbols. There's a whole field of study called semiotics, you know. I mean, a letter on a page is a symbol, right? And a few letters together, it's a symbol. And all symbols are, or they're just like shorthand, you know. They convey more than words can. A symbol, with a symbol, you can convey almost an unending amount of information, you know. And so you can meditate on the bread and the wine. And it's almost like you never stop gleaning, no pun intended, um, the meaning of it. And I don't think that's by accident. <laughs> no pun intended either. Um, but uh, it, it uh, so I'll have to say, you know, the, the, well, you've probably heard this, the, the sacraments are visible. It's the word made visible, right? But it's more than that, even. It's the word made tangible. It's the word made tasteful. It's the word, you know, it. it uh, so anyway, I appreciate you sharing that because it's it's a beautiful uh, reminder. Uh, yeah, word. Uh, the, the two always go together. They always go together. The reason we don't have symbols without word, without preaching, right, without explanation. Without, if if all you ever did was just like have a preacher or priest, you know, up front and blessing the wine and blessing um, the bread and then, but not say anything about it, eventually all kind of crazy stories would be invented. Because people would go, what, are they, what do they do up there? And someone would go, well, I've been watching them. You know, <laughs> um, you know it'd just be crazy stuff. And that's actually what happened in the early church, right? You know, people are like, I'll tell you what they do, you know. They're cannibals. And uh, <laughs> you can understand why they would say that, right? And so that's why the preaching of the word always accompanies the symbol. Because it's, it's saying, well, look, let us get you started on how to think about this. And you can continue to meditate on it, but let's put some bumpers in place here. So um, anything else? Uh, any other comment or question? Oh, no, you're not allowed. <laughs> First of all, thanks for that. That was, that was wonderful. Uh, a comment and then and then a question. One of the things I really appreciate about your lecture tonight is I do think there's a tendency within the very, I guess, assigned <coughs> Protestant conversation that we're having about the law and sanctification that it does sometimes get, tend to get reduced to the moral question. Huh. Could, do I do good things or do bad things? And you expanded that in the end. I thought it was very fruitful to this larger issue about what it means to be human. Hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting that in the Reformation period, you have this resurgence of interest in the gospel and scripture and vocation. Hmm. So the sort of clergy-laity divide becomes very opaque within this period as well, where now people's vocations to be to go out into the world and to be bakers and lawyers. Hmm. And that I found that to be very helpful to be thinking of that in terms of participating in the very life of God, which is what St. Peter. So I'll, I'll just say thank you for that. The, set, the question that I have, though, is, I mean, my instincts are with you, right? I mean, I just put my cards on the table. I think people know that. But I read Calvin, and yeah. maybe some of the, um, the fruit of Calvin in the second generation. And Calvin himself at times will talk about looking at our attendance to the law for assurance. In other words, it, it gives us a sense of assurance. Mm -hmm. 
And then I think when that gets into the Puritan period, things, the wheels fall off. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm asking you as a pastor, right? As a pastor, oh. how do you deal with sanctification as it relates pastorally to assurance? And what about, what about the William Coopers who never get over their depression? Hmm. Or what about the people who struggle with that persistent nagging thing that's just, it's just, they've been working on it for years. So it's not <clears> Um, how, how pastorally, again, my instincts are with you, but pastorally, how do you navigate that in, in the life of the parish? I just avoid it, and that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to answer with a story, and then I'll give the real. So um, <laughs> this friend of mine had a brother who went to Samford, and the, the brother's just a character, and he made an um, appointment one day when he was like a junior with Frank Barker at Briarwood Church. And the reason is he had grown up in a Presbyterian church, and Frank Barker's a legend in Presbyterian church, and um, as he should be. And But I... Uh, this guy's just a character. And so anyway, he goes out with Dr. Barker and he says, well, you know, eventually, Dr. Barker, I did have a question I wanted to ask you. Um, he said, uh, <clears throat> I've got a lot of friends who are Christians and, um, you know, we do various things together and we go on retreats and we, you know, do different things. And he said, he said, uh, he said uh, I'm a smoker. And uh, Dr. Barker said, okay. And he said, you know, recently I was on a retreat with my friends and they all kind of ganged up on me and they said, you know, your, your smoking has got to stop because it's hurting your witness. And um, he said, Dr. Barker, I quit. And Dr. Barker said, well, good for you. And he said, no, I mean, I quit witnessing. <laughs> um, so uh, that's a true story. Um, that's a true story. But uh, <laughs> somehow that's my answer to you, Mark. And um, but uh, no, you know. So what, Mark is, you know, it, it's yeah, you know, you're kind of like, oh man, you know, there are parts of this where you just simply go, I quit. I mean, like, so <clears throat> question: Do you think the law, as we look at it? ever helps us when we're kind of asking the question, am I really a Christian? I think it does. But only in as much as it ultimately is pointing us back to Jesus, right? Who is the fulfillment of the law. And who, who we want to be at work in our lives, you know? I have people on a regular basis, tell me what God is doing in their lives, and I just kind of sit there and nod because I'm thinking, you know, look, I, I don't know what he's doing, and frankly, I don't think you do either. And um, <laughs> so um, I had a girl with Campus Crusade. I, was, I worked at the University of Texas with students for eight years, and a girl on the staff with Campus Crusade, I was with Presbyterian Ministry, RUF. She came to me one time. She said, can I talk with you? And I said, sure. And she said, uh, we have these leadership meetings every week, and these girls I work with, um, 
you know, they'll tell me what all, you know, they'll announce to the whole group what all God is doing in their life. And she said, what do I do if those things are actually not the things God is doing in their lives? And I said, why don't you tell them? She said, that's all I wanted to hear. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, this idea that we are judges of our own sanctification of, um, it, it's not a good idea. You don't find a lot of that in the Bible. Matter of fact, if you ever want to be really um, both frightened and encouraged at the same time, <laughs> well, just read the Bible. But um, <laughs> Matthew 24 and 25, though, which is pr- pretty sober stuff Jesus is lying down, but he talks about the sheep and the goats. You know? And the goats who are not associated with him, are not going to be, Jesus says, are the ones who are very aware of their works. Like, they've been keeping a ledger. They can tell you all. They've been charting their success or their progress with sanctification. The sheep, like, they're completely unaware. It's not even on their mind. Jesus says the same thing to them, and, but the sheep are like, no, Tell me, when did we do that? I mean, I'm glad to hear that we were serving you, but when was that? And Jesus like, any time you gave a cup of coffee, you know, what Jesus is basically saying, the whole of your life, you know. Because you, you know what it is to desire mercy and not sacrifice, you know. And I think we can apply that to what you're saying that... <clears throat> There is a sense where the law kind of helps us kind of glance at ourselves in the mirror and go, you know, um, uh, well, let's put it this way. Uh, Statistics would say that someone in the room tonight is having an affair. In my own experience, I've been in Birmingham three and a half years now, would say that someone in the room is probably having an affair. And I may be wrong. I hope I am wrong. But if you're in the midst of an affair, we used to actually ask elder candidates at the church in Austin, um, uh, what's the closest you've ever come to having an affair? It's a terrible question, isn't it? You know, it's easy to answer. Have you ever had an affair? What's the closest you've come to having an affair? You know, we would say, no, you know, it's up to you whether or not your wife reads the answer. And, um, but if you're having an affair and you're a Christian, when you're reminded that adultery is sin, there's several things going on at that point. One is a reminder that Jesus died for you. And so you don't have to serve the various idols you're serving whereby you've entered into this affair and seeking to gain whatever you're seeking to gain by serving those aisles. Furthermore, though, the law says to you, um, people who know God and pursue God have ceased to be adulterers. So what are you going to be? And it may even say to someone, oh, yeah, I used to be an adulterer, and I'm actually not anymore. 
Because God redeemed me from that way of life. I've got a good friend here like that. I mean, he would say that to you. He would say, I used to be a serial adulterer. Do I still wrestle with lust? Sure, but, but let me tell you what. I am not now what I once was, and that is because of God's work in my life. And so, yeah, is that a marker that he's a Christian? Yeah. But we want to be really careful about making that some kind of um, litmus test. You know, or What I would say is I don't think we ought to trust ourselves a whole lot. And I, this is a Lutheran taught me. To um, rather than do kind of the more Puritan thing of well, kind of gauge yourself via the the law. Um, th- th- again, there's something to that. I mean, you know, because uh, we have blind spots, and the law helps us see our blind spots. I think. But if you're really wondering whether or not you're a Christian, there's only one place to look, and that's the cross. Because what the cross says is, look, whether you're a Christian or not, the answer is the same. You know, trust and obey. You know, repent and believe. Like we used to have this joke in seminary that you know you leave, have all these wonderful lectures, and you leave about twice a week, going, you know, I don't know if I was a Christian before now, but I think I am now. And um, and uh, that's just the that's the Christian life right there. Bob Yarborough, one of your friends who is a, a just uber um, talented theologian, he planted a church in Montana years ago. And he, as he told our class one day, he said the Saturday before the church was kind of cranking up on Sunday, he's sitting on his porch in Montana. It was summer. And, um, and he, said the cro- he said, the thought crossed my mind, Bob, what if you're not a Christian? And he said, frankly, uh, that's a hell of a thought the day before you plant a church. And, um, and, but, you know, as Christians, we actually think that way. You know, one of the things that the gospel does is make us more sensitive, you know. But also, it, it, instead of becoming really introspective, it lifts our head up. And we, over and over again, go to Christ and go, but for grace. And grace is real. And we look not just to the cross, we look to the empty tomb, right? And we say, death has been defeated. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is mine too, via my baptism, via my union with Christ. And um, I don't have to do a lot. You know, God's calling me not to look behind, but to look ahead, which means he's not calling me to kind of keep a ledger about what's going on here. He's just calling me to repent and believe, repent and believe. And I, maybe I'll, I mean I'll close with this, Um, because I think it relates. Um, You know, sure, let the law inform you. Let it help you. If your conscience is beating you up, remember the gospel over and over again. Um, Some people say, like, preach the gospel to yourself. I think that's good. I think what's even better is having other people who will preach it to you, because I don't know about you. I've been at the point many times where I couldn't preach the gospel to myself. I need someone else to preach the gospel to me. That's why we're called to live in community, right? And, um, but Noah is called a blameless man. Now, was Noah sinless? No. Was Noah being sanctified? Must have been. If he's called blameless, I mean, something's got to be going on, right? See, 
In the Bible, the word blameless means repentant. I don't mean that it literally means, but the, the, what's meant by the word blameless is not perfect in the way that like the Western world tries to make everything perfect and everyone. Blamelessness means faithful, meaning full of faith, and repentant. Do you sin? Yeah. But do you hate your sin? Yeah. And do you want to make amends? Yeah. And you know, that's what blamelessness is before the Lord. You know? Jesus didn't say, Blessed are those who are full. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled, right? That's good news, isn't it? Well, uh, I'm happy to hang around a little bit. It, it's been a delight. It's tr truly a privilege. And um, even to be included with Mark and Peter, because they're heroes of mine. So, um, yeah, pray for us. Would that be okay? Y'all are, are Episcopalians. You say trespasses, don't you? <laughs> just got to get my game face in here so um all right let's pray father thank you for gathering us it's uh, uh i'm reminded so often there's so many um things we could be doing or places we could be and i don't, I don't mean uh, we could be without you and we could be following our own ways and lost and you um, you draw us into your body and you give us fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers and you were just so good to us and uh, we thank you that you don't set us on a, a, a path that is a test you set us on a path that is um, renewing, and it's a path of sanctification. It's not so much something we have to do, it's something we get to do. So thank you. Um, Father, I thank you for these men and women here, and I just pray your blessings on them. Uh, I pray for illnesses that are represented here, either personally or loved ones. I pray for just difficulties relationally and difficulties financially. And I pray for all of us for the difficulties we have in becoming godly. Whether it's our tempers or whether it's our um, arrogance. Uh, rather, whether it's our greed. Whether it's lust. Grant us the grace, Father, to know that uh, the blood of Christ, those things are no match for the blood of Christ. And thank you that your blood washes away sin and you really do pour out your spirit on us that we might begin to walk in your ways. And uh, when you tell us, when you teach us to pray, you don't teach us to pray flowery language and complicated things. You taught your disciples to pray very simply. And so tonight, because we're together, we pray as you taught us. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Go in peace.